the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As we talk about politics today and part of the electoral process underway, a lot of it is indicative of what makes this country so great, so unique as it has been for over 250 plus years of its existence. And you often have to wonder, as I do myself, when I see oddities come up. Um, within the life of our nation, uh, extra constitutional things, uh, debates over things that, um, that quite frankly have no business being passed into law, uh, you know, such as the passage of this new, um, defense authorization bill that grants the president the power, the authority to declare the United States and its territories a battlefield and then to arrest people that are, are uh, challenged with, not even charged with, just simply Allegedly, having participated in some kind of a terrorist act without defining what we mean by a terrorist act and to then discharge the military to then go and arrest them and jail them uh, without having been charged of committing any kind of a crime, without giving the opportunity to have an attorney or make the first telephone call or or a speedy trial, any of that. Uh, because, of course, when you when you do this as an act of war, it comes under an entirely different set of rules. That are extra constitutional. And I wonder to myself quite frequently if our founding fathers could come back and see America today in contrast with what it was when some of them, in fact, literally gave of their lives uh, for the freedoms that we have enjoyed to this point. Would they even recognize our nation today? And, and one of the interesting founding fathers that I think would have perhaps one of the biggest bones of contentions uh, to pick with the nation uh, that he fought for would be that of Patrick Henry. Remember, of course, most notably as one of the first governors of Virginia, give me liberty or give me death, that amazing speech uh, that... Um, that he gave. Well, uh, would he, Patrick Henry, know America today? We get some insights now from author Dr. Thomas Kidd. He is Associate Professor of History at Baylor University, winner of a 2006-07 National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship, and a leading historian of the American Revolution. And Dr. Kidd, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. When we talk about some of these things going on in our nation today and, and some of the disputes that, that raise serious questions about their constitutionality, I have to wonder if, if uh, by, by miracle we could teleport Patrick Henry into the 21st century here and he could walk around, read our newspapers, uh, see what goes on in our state houses, uh, sit into a session or two of, of Congress, read through uh, the roll call. Do you think he would recognize this is the very country that he fought for? No, I, I think he would be appalled. <laughs> I, I, and I think most of the, the founders would not recognize what America has become. Maybe Alexander Hamilton. Uh, he, he seemed to be uh, one of the only ones who had uh, some aspirations for America to become uh, uh, what Patrick Henry would have called an almost imperial kind of nation. Uh, that Hamilton envisioned with the Constitution for the, 
for America to become at least a great commercial power uh, and that the government would would promote the, the interests of, of uh, big business and so forth. Uh, but the size and scope uh, at, at every turn from uh, the welfare state uh, to the uh, the military and the kind of military exploits, we've gotten involved with war on terror and everything. I think that most of the founders, but especially people like Patrick Henry, would have a hard time recognizing what we've become. What I found interesting about your new book, Patrick Henry, First Among Patriots, and again, this is newly published by Basic Books and available through Amazon.com, that he, he was someone who, in fact, had great concerns to the, of, to the point of actually opposing the, the ratification of the Constitution because he feared that it would endanger the rights of the states as well as the freedoms of individuals. Explain that to me. Well, that's right, and I think this is one of the reasons why Patrick Henry is not better known uh, and that he is obscured by people like James Madison, because I think people love uh, give me liberty or give me death, but then they think, well, what went wrong with him? You know, why, why did he oppose the Constitution? But I think for Henry, it's, it's very easy to understand and explain. He believed that the American Revolution was a revolution against centralized national government power, in the case of Britain, uh, and their unjust tax policies against the colonists. And so he thought that here we are, uh, 10 or 11 years later, uh, and Americans are trying to put a new, more centralized uh, national government over themselves. Uh, they already had a constitution, the Articles of Confederation, which was a very state-based kind of system with a very weak national government. And uh, to Henry, that was done on purpose. It wasn't, it wasn't a mistake. It was a different kind of government from what they had under Britain. And he thought that despite there was, there was a number of problems going on economically and so forth, but he thought that the answer is not creating a great new uh, national government because that's going back to what we had under Britain. Sort of this concept of the power comes from the people up as opposed to being bestowed to the people from, from above. Right, and, and he believed that uh, political power is inherently dangerous, uh, which all the founders believed that, but, but he believed that because of human nature, uh, which he saw as uh, inherently uh, sinful and grasping for uh, other people's uh, property and uh, grasping for power, so he thought that the best kind of government was a, was a very decentralized government in which uh, no part of the government could could have too much power. And so you had a weak national government, uh, stronger uh, you know, individual state governments and local governments, so that uh, even if one state uh, went awry, uh, they wouldn't take down the whole uh, nation. And so he much preferred that over uh, Madison and Hamilton's kind of system of a, of a stronger national government. And, and you know, people know the, that the anti-federalists, many people know the anti-federalists were the ones calling for a Bill of Rights, and that certainly was part of Patrick Henry's concern. The original Constitution didn't have a Bill of Rights, but it was more fundamental for Patrick Henry. For instance, he wanted to take away the national government's power to tax and leave that only to the states. Uh, and what was the revolution about? It was about unjust taxes by Brit the British, and Henry thought, why should we go back and give our national government the power to tax again? He, he would look at things such as the, the amendment of the Constitution in 1913 that, by the way, was never properly ratified uh, and would probably be uh, much in shock, uh, assuming that we're kind of reassembling the monarchy here. 
Right, and, and this is the, the income tax uh, amendment, which is, which is a significant departure uh, from the original intent of the, of the Constitution, but it is clear that the national government under the Constitution uh, at least has a, a right to uh, a, sort of a property-based kind of uh, tax system and various imposts and, and this kind of thing, which they leaned on in the early republic. And even that, Henry thought, uh, was dangerous. He, he said, look, if you give a national government like this the unlimited right to tax and spend, uh, maybe it will stay small for a while, but eventually it will become a monster, and we won't be able to control its size and its debt. Uh, and that uh, that warning sounds a lot like what we've become today. Boy, isn't that the truth. If you've just joined us, our conversation tonight with Dr. Thomas Kidd, a look at Patrick Henry, first among patriots. It's an interesting glimpse, I think, and it ought to serve as a major warning for all of us, that as we see the inconsistencies, the unraveling, so to speak, in Washington, D.C., whether we're talking about out-of-control spending, out-of-control powers that are being uh, captured by the president or by Congress or, or quite frankly, legislation by the bench uh, at the judicial level, uh, this ought to be a sobering wake-up call that, that one of the key founders, one of the principles involved in the creation of our nation in the 1700s, uh, would look at where we're at today and would probably shake his head in absolute total disgust. When we come back, we're also going to talk about different aspects of this, including Patrick Henry's very strong commitment to freedom of faith, freedom of religion, and where that is at today. Our conversation with Dr. Thomas Kidd continues as we look at Patrick Henry here on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If one of the founding fathers could uh, somehow be uh, transported back in uh, time or forward in time, I guess, and, and could suddenly find themselves not in the mid-1700s, but here now in, in 2012, and could pick up a newspaper and read what's going on in the body politic in America today, uh, spend some time listening to a debate on the floor of the House, uh, or um, or read some of the executive powers uh, and orders that have been uh, exercised by the president, do, do you think? Do you think that um, the founding fathers would recognize this country and say, "Oh yeah, that's the America that I helped create"? Well, as our guest today, uh, Dr. Thomas Kidd is suggesting, no. The answer is no. No, probably not at all. He's authored a new book called Patrick Henry: First Among Patriots, and again, the new book published by Basic Books and available bookstores throughout the Bay Area one or two that still exist, but most notably, of course, through Amazon.com. Yeah, I find it interesting that we look at some of these men who, uh, for whom these beliefs was not just something that they were willing to enunciate uh, and go public on. These were beliefs that they held so closely, so dearly that they were willing to die for them. And yet it seems as if we have very easily, uh, through fiat and uh, bad legislation, have, have almost whittled away the bulk of a lot of the the real foundation, I'm going to say, uh, Dr. Kidd, of what America was. Well, that's right. And I think that someone like Henry, uh, the reason why I call him the first among patriots is because he was so uh, aware of the threats to liberty. Uh, and so he is always seems to be first in line uh, to decry uh, British encroachments against American Liberty, And so he's already doing this even before the revolutionary crisis begins. There's a trial in 1763 
uh, where he the, the British have overturned a perfectly reasonable Virginia law. And he says, well, if the king will do this, he, he's degenerating into a tyrant. <laughs> people, as is common with, with Henry's uh, major speeches, people start muttering, uh, treason, sir, treason, you know, and, but he's willing to, to risk being uh, arrested. Uh, right at the beginning of the revolution in, in Virginia, he becomes the commander-in-chief of Virginia's armed forces in George Washington's absence. Uh, these are people who are very much willing to lay their lives on the line uh, in the name of American liberty. And I think that we, uh, all of us, I think, have become uh, too complacent about this today. When you look at things like the the Patriot Act, uh, where we've essentially now said that no, you're no longer compelled to get a a, a federal judge to issue a, a warrant in order to engage in eavesdropping, and then most recently this passage here and signature by the president over the New Year's holiday that allows effectively the declaration of uh, the United States and its territories to be declared a battlefield, and as such, the president can then dispatch the United States military uh, to go out and arrest residents, aliens, or U.S. citizens uh, with the charge that they've engaged in some act of terrorism or the intent to uh, engage in terrorism and effectively lock them up without the ability of trial, jury, a judge, uh, an attorney, even a telephone call home to mother. I mean, I got to tell you, I I find this to be so out of line. I mean, this is the kind of stuff to which, I mean, wouldn't somebody like Patrick Henry take a glove off and and slap somebody in the face over something like this? (laughs) I'm sure sure he would. And this is why they were calling him for, among other things, very clear rights to uh, to trial, uh, jury trial, and and so forth. And, and, And even with that, Henry thought that if you give a national government uh, the kind of power that is given under the Constitution, that all it takes is getting a president, uh, getting people in Congress, getting judges who are willing to act out of the accord of the of the original intent of the Constitution, and they can corrupt it. Uh, and their study of the, the past, the classical antiquity, always told them that this kind of militarization of the state, becoming a, a more police-oriented state, especially from the top down, uh, was the way that liberty began to go away. It was curious about this is the fact that we're, we're dealing with men who, who knew what it was like to live under the impression of a monarchy. So they had some point of comparison. Uh, this is something that perhaps that we don't hear in America. I mean, we, we've enjoyed, uh, you know, several hundred years now of freedom and liberties, unprecedented uh, across the planet in many respects. And yet, because of the fact that we have no point of comparison and have failed, as you suggest, Dr. Kidd, to really engage in that study of the past is what perhaps puts us at greatest risk, wouldn't it? I think so, and I, and I think that when I teach my uh, students about the Anti-Federalists and about Henry in particular, I think it, it's, I find it's hard for them to even take what he says seriously because we have been taught that the Constitution almost uh, you know, runs by itself without any kind of monitoring by the people and, and so forth. And so when, and so when Henry says uh, that he thinks the office of president is dangerous, he says, uh, he says, people say that this Constitution is, this is what he says of the ratifying convention, people say that this Constitution is so lovely, but to me it seems 
ugly. It has a strange squinting. He says it squints towards monarchy. <laughs> so, you know, he says you're 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 president. Call him a president, but he may easily become king. And Americans, I think, today saw oh, that could never happen. But what is this? You know, these exercises of of uh, kind of aggressive executive power over American citizens. I mean, what is that like? Uh, uh, besides monarchy, uh, and and so that you know we can call it a president or monarch, but uh, someone who's given that kind of power can easily abuse it. Well, exactly so. And I mean, for example, there was some debate here. Unfortunately, it didn't get quite as spirited as I wished it had. Um, in the revelation, I think the most Americans were completely ignorant of that as much as the United States Congress has passed laws and regulations with regard to such things as insider trading, uh, they took caution and care to exempt themselves from such legislation. And so the act that, uh, for example, uh, uh, the chef um, helping here, um, Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart, uh, her, her action in selling shares of a company that she had interest in uh, on the cusp of some changes that would have affected the price, effectively to preserve her financial interest in the company, uh, that action that cost her $90,000 penalty, uh, plus time in jail and three years under probation, uh, the very same action conducted by a member of the United States Congress brings no reprisals, no penalties, nothing at all, because they've taken the time and care to exempt themselves from insider trading laws. Now, if that doesn't take on um, uh, monarch-style overtures and tones, uh, Dr. Kidd, I, I don't know what does. That that the monarchy effectively passed all the rules and laws, but didn't have to live under the laws that they passed. You know, the, 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 uh, the old adage, don't do as I do, do as I say. Right, and, and you know, I think with Henry, his Christian beliefs gave him a, a, such a moral clarity about the risks of this kind of power. And again, at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, he said, this Constitution will work fine, uh, except for the fact that we can't trust politicians' moral character. Mm. Uh, and he, he said, the depraved nature of man is well known. And so all it will take for this Constitution to allow uh, a, a turning away from the original intent is putting people in office who are willing uh, to abuse the power that the Constitution gives them. And to Patrick Henry, it was inexorable that that would happen under the American Constitution. Well, uh, you know, we, we've uh, we've considered him to be one of the key founding fathers. He perhaps is uh, also one of the uh, the key um, predictors uh, that exactly what he warned us about has come to pass. We'll come back to more of our conversation, turn a corner after an update on traffic. I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Kidd to give us some insights on the, the, the spiritual beliefs of uh, Patrick Henry and, and most importantly, the how the, the shaping of his political views uh, took place under the guidance of his spiritual and religious views. A look at Patrick Henry, first among patriots, the author of this new book, Dr. Thomas Kidd, our guest on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
one of the most acclaimed founding fathers, Patrick Henry, the focus of our conversation this afternoon, First Among Patriots, and our guest is author Dr. Thomas Kidd. As we mentioned earlier on, um, a look at the amazing life of this man, who, oddly enough, in the very beginning, uh, was against the language of the United States Constitution, uh, considered a leader in the anti-federalist movement, uh, concerned that in some respects it would be granting the federal government too much power. Boy, did he have a crystal ball to look at back then, or what? Now, the interesting thing, you you made reference to his concern and acknowledgement over the depravity of man, that all of this would work out fine, provided that everybody that uh, heretofore, from the founding of our nation, would be good and moral and honorable, and would think only, of course, uh, uh, about uh, what is best for the nation, and not uh, not approach any of this from uh, purely self-serving uh, perspective. Of course, we know that uh, that has has not happened, uh, that the depravity of man has uh, has influenced uh, the governance of this nation for uh, you know better part of uh, over 200 plus years now. And with all of that, um, concerns about where the nation is, is headed. Uh, talk to us a bit, if you would, uh, Dr. Kidd, about the influence of Patrick Henry's spiritual life on his political life. Well, among the major founding fathers, he's the most uh, outspoken Christian. It's not that there are other founders, of course, who are who are traditional Christians too. But he's, I think, uh, increasingly outspoken about his faith over the course of his life, and uh, he is deeply influenced as a boy, as a teenager, by the Great Awakening in Virginia, which is a series of revivals in the 1740s and 50s and his mother got involved with a uh, a new revivalist congregation in Virginia uh, and she would take Patrick Henry when he was a boy to these meetings and uh, I, I think that these uh, meetings about uh, the gospel and salvation through Christ really stuck uh, deeply with Henry and certainly uh, formed his own faith uh, but I think they also helped him to uh, develop as a speaker. The pastor uh, at these revival meetings was a man named Samuel Davies. And later on, Henry said that Davies was the greatest orator that he ever heard. And coming from someone like Henry, who by all, all accounts was the greatest uh, orator of the, the American Revolution, that's quite a compliment. Indeed so. Um, the role of faith... In the founding of our nation, uh, you know, the the phrase the separation of church and state has been uttered so many times that I, w- I would suppose uh, a man like Patrick Henry would, would choke on those words. <laughs> well, he, he went head to head with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in the 1780s in Virginia. Uh, because Patrick Henry believed that Virginia and the other states, not the national government, but the states, should continue direct tax support for the churches. Uh, and this is uh, an opinion that was shared by about half of the major founders. Uh, George Washington and John Adams believed in direct tax support for churches by the states. Uh, but Virginia decided to go with full uh, disestablishment of the, of the churches, no direct tax support. At all, but this was never a debate about pro-religion versus anti-religion. It was always a debate on, about on what basis that religion would thrive best. And I think that that it's interesting to note that uh, Jefferson and Madison are supported in their effort to get the government completely out of the business of promoting a denomination. They're supported in that by uh, many evangelical Christians, including especially evangelical Baptists. 
The reason is is because the Baptists had fresh memories of being persecuted by the state church, and they thought that the government just messes up religion when it gets involved with. So the concern here was the government's influence on religion. Not as we've seen it today, where there seems to be such a great degree of paranoia that at some level or another, the, the, the religion or religious beliefs might somehow influence the government. Absolutely. And, the, and the, the major founders would be perplexed at the way that secularists in particular interpret the idea of separation of church and state to mean the erasure of, of religion from American public life. One of the best examples of this is even Jefferson, who's the one who wrote this uh, phrase, wall of separation between church and state. He wrote that in 1802 to a group of evangelical Baptists in Connecticut. And the same weekend he sent that letter, he hosted a church service in the House of Representatives chambers with a Baptist preacher giving the sermon. <laughs> so that, that phrase by Jefferson that I understand at the time uh, he was not engaged in public office. Uh, this is a, a private letter that he wrote uh, that, again, it, it, to properly put that in, into context, was not a warning about keeping the church's, uh, church out of any government business, but instead the other way around. Well, the Baptists in Connecticut were bothered because Connecticut in 1802 still had an established state church, the Congregationalist Church, and they wanted Connecticut to stop supporting this one particular denomination, and Jefferson was sympathizing with them about that, and he said, well, look, we're glad that at least on the national level, uh, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, meaning that we'll never have an official national denomination. But it, two days later, Jefferson is hosting a church service in the House of Representatives chambers. So Irony. separation of church and state means to Jefferson, the great separationist, it can include having church services in government buildings. Pulling all of this back full circle, uh, Dr. Kidd, you began your early remarks uh, about the value of some of the, the influences of our founding fathers, such as Patrick Henry, uh, by their study of the past. And they, they wanted to put in certain protections that would prevent a so-called repeat performance. Well, obviously, we have erred tremendously uh, in this uh, you know more recent generations of governance of our nation uh, in our failure to really properly study the past. That said, what do you think that we can learn of Patrick Henry, his life, his values, the positions that he that he held dear, that can be an important lesson to help us correct some of the incorrect path that our nation has been down recently. Well, I think that that Patrick Henry, if he was alive today, he would he would if he was in a bad mood, he would probably say, "I told you so." <laughs> uh, but he would probably also say, what, "What I was arguing for in 1788, when I spoke out against the Constitution, was not just assurances of the protection of liberty and economic uh, good order, uh, but actual structural limitations on power." And I think that when you look at an idea of, for instance, like a balanced budget amendment, which is not a perfect solution, but it is a structural limitation on Congress's power to keep spending. I think that Henry would probably say, yes, that's the sort of thing that I have in mind, is actually preventing uh, the government structurally from being able to do these sorts of things. And I think he would also remind us that, after all, we do have the power to vote people out when they do not do what the Constitution says 
uh, that they should do. So I think he would recommend that we take control of our power and the sovereignty of the people under the United States Constitution. Boy, if listeners in the Bay Area are tuned in, can I add some names to that list? Diane Feinstein, Barbara Boxer, Pete Stark. I won't waste your time. <laughs> Dr. Kidd, I appreciate so much your time today. Thank you very much. A look at Patrick Henry, First Among Patriots. Again, the new book, newly published by Basic and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And its author has been our guest today, Dr. Thomas Kidd, again, Associate Professor of History at Baylor University and considered one of our nation's leading historians of the American Revolution. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is an alarming statistic and one that both regionally in the San Francisco Bay Area and nationally is growing by an alarming rate. Would you be shocked to discover that approximately one out of three women, about 35% of the U.S. female population at some time in their life has been the victim of domestic violence? Oftentimes, the violence takes forms beyond just simple verbal or physical altercations, sexual violence. Oftentimes, it spills into other areas of the family where even the children become victims. Women quite often are left with no other option but to run. But then in the running, the question becomes, where? Where do you go? Going to a friend's house, maybe a relative. Well, the abusive partner or husband knows where they live. They just simply follow and bring the abuse with them. What options are available for women who find themselves victims of domestic abuse and violence where they can go, find a place that can be loving, sheltering, give them an opportunity to get their life back on track again, all the while also welcoming their children. Joining me today in studio is the Executive Director of Shepherd's Gate Ministries, and Steve McCree, welcome to the program. Thank you. I guess the big answer to that question is, where do they go? What options do these women have? One answer is indeed Shepherd's Gate. Absolutely, Craig. Uh, We've seen over 10,000 women and kids come and live at Shepherd's Gate over the years, and uh, every one of them that has come through has has found a relationship pretty much with Jesus Christ, and that just totally transforms their lives. This ministry is a real grassroots ministry in every uh, sense of the term, isn't it? I mean, I, I think of the beginnings. This began as one woman with one house, with one burden, to help women that were facing crisis circumstances. And this has grown into a ministry now 25, 30 years later that, as you say, has impacted the lives of tens of thousands of women and their families. That's fairly remarkable. That's correct. It's it's totally been totally God. And um, started a little three-bedroom house, 16 women in a very short-term program. We couldn't help them very long. And it's grown just in the past few years to two campuses. 90 women and children can live at a time. And the services, like there's 42 different classes we give them, all Bible-based. Their lives are literally transformed. When you see someone come in the door, um, the beautiful thing to me is they can come in literally black and blue, uh, certainly hopeless in their eyes. Uh, the kids are dragging their, dragging their one little toy behind them or whatever, just all their belongings with them. And they've escaped, and they are not don't know what they're escaping to. And sometimes when they first walk in and see the beauty that God's provided there in the actual physical buildings, they just weep and realize how much God loves them and how much the community 
how many caring people there are because with no government support it's all people in the community and that's the way we uh, exist you know the irony is we, we hear of these statistics 35 percent of women uh, at some time in their life will become victims of domestic violence of one sort or another and of course we know on the the severe end of that continuum are women that are dealing with circumstances where the husband is physically abusive sexually abusive maybe is dealing with a drug or alcohol problem that spills over into now abusing the children women oftentimes are fleeing these circumstances no sense of what they're running to they just know what they're running from and feel as if there's no one that cares no one that can help them they're afraid to go to the authorities because oftentimes the the husband or the boyfriend is saying you know if you tell anybody i'll kill you or i'm going to kill somebody else in your family so they're, they're they're having to face a tremendous amount of uncertainty into which then as they finally make up the courage, find the, the it within themselves to flee, oftentimes right at the skin of their teeth. There have been cases of women that have changed their mind at the last minute and wound up dead. Yes. But now as they've flown out of that circumstance, they've got no resources. The husband's shut down access to the checking account. There's no credit card. They might be full-time mothers that have no marketable skills. Where do you go? What relative do you call and say, by the way, not only do I need to get away from my abusive partner, but now I got a couple of young kids with me. And so in that sense, then, Shepherd's Gate has really become kind of a an oasis for these women, hasn't it? Absolutely. With the intensive programs and with the love of God, uh, again, they get everything they need to rebuild their lives for them and their kids. And then also uh, stops the cycle. Of abuse, and you're talking about the abuse that can happen. Shepherd's Gate really takes in women and kids that are homeless for any reason. Much of that is domestic violence. Uh, one form of abuse is abandonment. One gal came in with five kids because her husband had taken the bank account, everything they owned, and she's on the streets. And within two months, uh, her life was completely turned around. She didn't know Christ when she came in, neither did her children. One by one, they found the Lord, and their their, um, entire demeanor changed so much. She knew there must be really a God for their kids to change that much. She had a house and a job within three months of coming to us. So they're not only rescued from often very dangerous circumstances, they're given a sense of hope. In some cases, hope for the very first time. You were mentioning to me, Steve, off the air of the story of one woman who had been involved in the Shepherd's Gate program for a while now, who literally, in in the middle of a, of a gathering, stopped and was crying and was expressing the fact that at that moment, she was experiencing genuine, unconditional love. For the very first time in her life, and this is a woman in her 40s. Yes, she's about 45 years old and just began bawling during our, actually yesterday's Bible study. Wow. My wife and I were giving, and she just said, it's the first time I've ever had love, experienced love from anyone, much less to understand that God loves me. And she said, you know, it's the first time I've ever been happy in my life. And it's the first time I've ever loved myself. There's something different about the approach that Shepherd's Gate takes. I mean, there are plenty of women's shelters. We know about them. You can go online and you can find a whole list of them in the San Francisco Bay Area. You can go to the Yellow Pages and find them. Finding a shelter is one thing. Finding home, finding family, 
is something entirely different. As you look at the programs and services offered by Shepherd's Gate, distill down, if you would, Steve, for our listeners, what's the one single difference about Shepherd's Gate from any of the other secular programs that are out there? It is saturated with the love of God and the Word of God, and they learn that they um, have a creator who has a purpose for their life. Uh, our belief is that most of the women that come through our doors had a call in their life, a purpose to fulfill by God, and that the enemy tried to take them out. And when they learn that they were created for a purpose and have a purpose, then we wrap, as I said before, about 42 different types of classes and programs, anything from job interviewing to parenting skills to budgeting, in with all the biblical principles they learn and the relationships that they, they gain. It changes their life. Totally. It stops the cycle, as you mentioned. It stops the cycle totally. It gives them a brand new start. It four generations. Them- We've got one lady came in, and there's four generations in her family that were all touched by Shepherd's Gate. Wow. One young man was with us when he was five years old. He's now in his late 20s and is a pastor. And his brother was also with us when he was three years old. He and his wife now started a Christian camp up in the Sierras. So it's just beautiful to see generational change. And, and it demonstrates the power of the impact of changed lives through Jesus Christ. It also demonstrates this ongoing sense that as much as the beginning days with Alice Ann that were part of this grassroots burden to do something, that that sense of grassroots community involvement continues to this day. People come, they volunteer, they conduct Bible studies with the women, training classes. You have churches that come in and volunteer, individuals that donate and support the ministry financially and prayerfully and and by other ways. So I guess in a real sense that the original family feeling that was so much of what Shepherd Gate was about in the beginning has continued on to this day, and that, with the component of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, has really has been the then the, the driving force of what's allowed this ministry to impact so many lives. We do try to keep it home. The buildings are structured to be they're, they're very large houses. They're eleven bedrooms, but they are their homes. And so the women feel uh, security there. They don't feel like they're in an institution, uh, certainly not in a shelter. They feel like they're home. Even the kids, um, instead of being ashamed to say they're going to the shelter on Portola, they say, I live in that big mansion on Portola, and they're proud to tell the other kids at school that. So it, it's just the self-esteem is just goes out of the roof, both on the facilities and, and the home field. And they stay, uh, the families stay connected with us long after they're gone. They come back and volunteers. We have many of them that we hire as employees, both at our thrift stores, and they also become um, house moms and work on the campus and help ladies that were in the same condition they were. So the impact is not only widespread, multi-generational, long-lasting. In fact, I, at the core, we could say the impact is eternal. Good yes, it is. Yeah, from a spiritual standpoint. If folks want to come by and visit, uh, this is kind of one of those things where you need to see it and experience. People say, gee, I, I love the sound of a ministry like that. And boy, I'd love to get involved. Our church would love to maybe come down and volunteer. We'd like to get behind the ministry financially. Uh, in a real sense, uh, seeing is believing, isn't it? Absolutely, and we love people to come visit. Uh, if they just call the office, 443-4283, 443-GATE, 
make an appointment. We'll definitely have staff there to lead them. I'd love to lead them through, uh, meet the people. Uh, so we'd, we'd love to have guests. And, of course, if you'd like to find out more about Shepherd's Gate, you can get details on the web by simply going to shepherdsgate.org. That's shepherdsgate.org. You'll have campuses both in Brentwood and in Livermore. That's correct. And so if somebody would say, hey, we, boy, this sounds like something we'd like to get behind and support, they can call, come out, visit one of the two campuses, both if they'd like, and, of course, uh, get a chance to discover more about this dynamic ministry that's been changing women's lives and impacting those for Christ right here in the Bay Area. Details again on the web at shepherdsgate.org. That's shepherdsgate.org. And our thanks to Steve McCreen, Executive Director of Shepherdsgate. Steve, thanks for dropping by. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.